Welcome to the Disney Parks Podcast with your hosts, Tony Castlenova from DisneyByTheNumbers.com and Parkhopper John from WDWParkhoppers.com. Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the podcast at all times and get ready for the Disney Parks Podcast. And welcome to this week's show. I am so excited about this week's guest. Uh, you, you don't, you might not know her name, but I know that you know her voice, and uh, you may even know her face from a couple things. I, I'm just so excited. Uh, I get ahead of myself, but she's an actress. She is a voiceover artist. She's uh, a former announcer for the NFL. She's a former cast member of Disneyland. She does some incredible voice matching that we'll get into a little bit. And if you are a gamer. I know that you know this lady's voice. Uh, she's also a part of uh, some Disney attractions and so much more. It's my incredible pleasure to welcome to the show, Kat Cressida. Yay! Hello! <laughs> I'm the incredible pleasure. It's my incredible pleasure. Oh, that was awesome. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks. So the first question I always like to uh, ask people is, uh, you know, how did they get uh, started with their their passion? And I believe that, you know, acting and voice acting is, is a passion of yours from reading your bio and everything you've done. And uh, you've graduated college with, you know, some pretty impressive credentials. So how did you get started with acting and voice acting, Kat? That is such a good question, Tony. Am I calling you T or Tony? Are we at homies? Are we hanging? Or <laughs> Any way you want to do it. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> I, I, I honestly got started the way that most people who are truly sick and obsessed get started. I, I started at two or three, um, way before I had a conscious thought about it. Um, when you're, when you're a kid, you pick up things and you just naturally gravitate to them. And I was apparently, I mean, this is the truth. We still have these Crayola renderings, but I would decide at the age of four to knock on neighbors' doors and charge them 10 cents and perform Pinocchio for them or Winnie the Pooh or Peter Pan. I, I don't know where I got the, as you know, as we say in some traditions, the chutzpah. It's a very Hollywood word. Um, great Yiddish word, but I, I don't know where I got that from. But I literally loved storytelling from the moment that I, apparently I was talking. And um I'm sure my parents were just thrilled to get, you know, calls from the neighbors saying, if you're missing someone, she's here performing for me for 10 cents. <laughs> but that was, that was what I uh, was naturally doing. And my father, I would force to, uh, when he was shaving, I remember sitting on a little wooden stool and I had the, those giant golden books, those Disney giant golden books, and I would read Pinocchio 
probably three times in a row and uh, move on to Bambi and then to Peter Pan. And I had those little uh, 78 records and I would memorize them and uh, talk along with them. I, the earliest one I remember is Mickey and the Beanstalk with the, with the magic harp. I remember that playing it over and over and over again. So that's, that's how I got started. That's not like the, glamorous official how i broke into hollywood part of it but that's definitely where it all started <laughs> very cool so you were uh probably the family person or even the the neighbor because my i remember my brother and uh my cousin who were neither in acting uh, but they used to put on these you know family shows whenever there was a, a gathering at christmas time or easter or, or thanksgiving or whatever so was that kind of what you would do is you know put on a show with other cousins or family members or um, well, I didn't need a holiday as a reason to do it. <laughs> Apparently, I didn't need a gathering as a reason to do it. And I do know that I recruited in uh, neighbors. I mean, there were some neighbors' kids. Um, and uh, and my, my poor brother, who, you know, you know, had to suffer through listening to albums playing over and over again in musicals and uh, got recruited into things and probably got things thrown on him as makeshift costumes. But I think I was also okay to do it solo. I probably acted out all the parts at once and thought that that was, you know. And the weird thing is, again, as a kid, you don't know that that's a thing. You don't, I don't, I never had the conscious thought, I'm going to be an actor or this is acting. I simply was doing it. And then I think after, you know, maybe by the age of seven or eight, you start to hear adults say back to you, oh, this one, she's going to be an actor, look out, or we've got a thespian in the family, and you start to realize that there's a label to it, and, um, you know, I don't know at what age kids watching TV suddenly have that awareness of, oh, that's not live, you know, that's that's not yeah. something going on right mm -hmm. in front of me with real people that's pre-recorded or whatever, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, turns out I was an actor in the making. Well, you know, the the bright side for you is, is you were an actor and, and you were, you know, you were reciting books. My parents had to suffer through me being a drummer. Yay! So I was constantly playing and, and I, I had that same self-realization, uh, which is funny. I don't I, I still play now um, pro, semi-professionally and I made a living at it for a long time. But when I was a kid, I never really thought, well, this is this is what this this is going to be my job. It just it just was what it was, you know. Yeah. So I think that what you said was very smart and very very intuitive because it just it just was. I just I remember I was the kid that was uh, listening to. Uh, there's always music on in the house. Not that this is a story about me. We're talking about you, but I'm sharing stories here. Uh, and we we had one of those big console uh, turntable record players. You know, four feet long you know, three feet off the ground. It was the perfect height for me to be my piano. And I would, I would lip sync and sing along and act like I was playing piano. So I, you know, you got, you got the acting bug and, and I got the music bug. So that's, cool. that's, that's pretty cool. Um, so you've done so many things uh, with, with acting. How, how did you actually get into the Disney company? how did you become sort of a cast member, I guess? Well, that's, yeah, so that, um, so I, uh, I don't know if you saw the really sweet, um, 
five-minute video that the attractions folk managed to, to nab at D23, but we, we talk a little bit about this. And I guess it's not, uh, not that it should be, but to me, it's it's my life. So I, I just happen to know it. But it, it was surprising to say those things out loud and have so many fans and people around the country suddenly be very, very excited and happy to learn that I'd sort of grown up in the, uh, around the Imagineering culture and around the parks um, as a kid and then and then being a cast member. I, I, you know what? I probably have never even, until this year, bothered to mention it out loud because it was just a piece of me and it wasn't something that I felt was, um, quote-unquote, important. It was important to me, but I didn't feel like it would matter to anybody. And it turns out that uh, a lot of cast members and a lot of um, aspiring voiceover and folk and, and acting folk are super excited to learn that I was a cast member. So, and maybe that should be obvious to me to put those together. But yeah, I started out my father, uh, who uh, was very creative and was a, a graphic designer and uh, had a real eye for art and visuals. Um, he was in marketing. And growing up, he worked very closely with, um, so W, you know, as, as we all as Disney geeks know, WDI was first WED, which came out of Rett Law. So um, somewhere in the late 60s, early 70s was when my father started to have uh, this association, this professional association working with the Imagineers. And Imagineering was a very different culture back then. It, it was not as um, corporate and and I don't say that in a you know in a negative way. Just now it's it's a very fully realized, very well populated, very organized part of the Walt Disney Company, and it, they're amazing. But back then it was a bit more informal, as I think a lot of the world was, you know, back in the early '70s. And so he had relationships and friendships with various folk working at the Walt Disney Company, and particularly with folk over at uh, what was WDI, um, and you'll have to forgive me, I'm sure some fan will know this, but I don't know when it officially went from WED to WDI. But um, And he also had always been fascinated with it and was into mechanics and engineering. He'd been an engineer uh, in the Army for a little bit um, as a young, you know, as a young man. And so he naturally gravitated towards the fascination of how things work and was friendly with these folk. And he also would have to go down to the park um, a lot to have meetings because back then a lot of them were sort of on location there. Uh, they still had the, you know, they still had the Glendale offices, but they also had a lot of folk down there. And I remember, um, you know, he'd have, he'd have meetings, and would we would go down, and that was back when they had the <laughs> the ticket books. Yeah, and um, we would walk in, and he would sit me down on a park bench and say, you know, Daddy's got to go. I have a couple of meetings with some very um, nice folk over at, you know, the studio. Even though we were down at the park, but that's how we would say it. And so I'll be gone for a little bit, but you know, just sit tight, um, observe, enjoy study and uh and then he would go sort of to the building that was around uh it was off of hudson harbor hudson boulevard back then wait harbor boulevard back then sorry (laughs) 
Um, see, I just gave away my uh, my New Jersey Hudson Harbor. I just put those together. Um, <laughs> so off of Harbor Boulevard was Mickey Mouse University back then, and that's where there were still some executive offices there. And he would go and have meetings, and I would sit in the park and absorb and pay attention and color in my coloring book. And uh, I have made this joke before. I'm certain he must have paid or tipped or said to some shopkeeper on Main Street, please keep an eye on her. Because I can't imagine, even as safe as, as the park was, that he would just, <laughs> especially with as adventurous as I was, that he would have just felt comfortable that I was going to stay put on the on the bench. But I never, as far as I remember, I never got up off of it. And um, he would come back and, you know, kid time is, is greatly expanded, but he would come back in what seemed like a couple of hours. And then we would enjoy half a day in the park. And sometimes we'd go on the attractions, but a lot of times we'd stand outside of them and he would just chat with me about how they had been created and why this building was this color and why it was this shape. And um, I think that's fascinating, you know, looking back that a parent was having those conversations with a kid when you know that most parents at the park are having conversations like, look, it's Mickey Mouse. (laughs) We were having conversations about the architecture and the texture and... Um, you know, all of that. So I would, to answer your question, and I'm sorry that that was a very full answer, but that's where I started. Yeah, no, that's uh, a great answer. With the association with Disney, uh, indirect, but uh, somewhat somewhat part of the culture. And um, as I've shared with um, a couple of great folk, more, you know, closely associated with the mansion, that's where I first heard the story, you know, the origin story of the mansion way back, uh, literally five years old. And mm. and my father would have to tell me stories because I was naturally scared. of. I was very scared of the Haunted Mansion. Um, I think the way kids have a gut instinct, it was so serene and beautiful and still on the outside that there was an, an, an instinct. I felt like, that, you know, something's going on in there. All these people are waiting online. Ooh, what's going on in there? And of course, there's gravestones. Right. You know, at the Disneyland one, there's gravestones surrounding you in the queue area. All what, over. What, the, so, what does it say? That sense of foreboding. Yeah. yeah, and and I would, you know, I was scared, and I didn't want to go, and I would cry. So he would distract me with stories, and I'm not sure if you know how these stories were going to help me feel better about going in the mansion, but he was telling me the origin stories of the sea captain and his bride and from what he knew from the Imagineers and from, you know, being hearing stories and around that culture. So that's, that's where I kind of learned that at an early age. And then being a cast. So I fell in love with Disney sort of followed in my father's footsteps. And again, having been introduced to it, sort of the quality, the classiness of it, the tremendous amount of planning and organization and the cinematic point of view that Walt had in building Disneyland. Um, And, you know, one of my real triggers still to this day is when someone from the East Coast says, you know, oh, yeah, Disneyland is just sort of, you know, (laughs) it's, it's much smaller than Disney World and we don't need to go because we've got Disney World. And I'm you know, don't even get me on that one because Walt created and planned and created this beautiful gem called Disneyland that I, you know, nothing can compare to it because it was so specifically created that, yes, it is, quote unquote, smaller, 
but it packs a heck of a wallop and a much more powerful wallop, in my opinion, in some ways, um, creatively. So uh, now that that was in my, my blood and now that I grew up with it, when I was old enough to realize that people could work at the park, that was like game over. It was nothing going to stop me from, you know, somehow doing that. Never mind that we lived in Los Angeles, which was an hour and a half from Anaheim, and never mind that I didn't have a car. I decided that I was going to be a cast member. And, um, you know, I'm sure there were things like over my dead body and, you know, where are you going to get the money? You know, you don't have a car, all that stuff, all that practical stuff from my parents. And it didn't matter. I applied, I applied for a job, and I think the next week I was scrounging the classifieds for some beat-up stick that I could buy with my uh, whatever life savings I had at that point, and I became a cast member. <laughs> so I think I'm one of the few people who literally was coming from Los Angeles to, to drive down every single day and come back every single night. Wow. So we heard that you worked uh, the storybook land canal boats. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that, and then uh, can you still do any of the uh, spiel? Because I'm assuming back in the day you were still on the boat, and that's probably one of the only attractions around still that actually has a live person doing you know, a spiel on it besides the Jungle Cruise. I mean, here in Florida, we yeah. very rarely have anything with a live person anymore. Oh really? Yeah, okay. yeah. The Jungle Cruise is about it. Uh, Do I they, and they don't have Storybook Land, right? Yeah, that no, was just no. the original. Yeah. Um. So yes. Um. Storybook Land, canal boats was exactly what I what I worked on, and I I was very vociferous about wanting to be on it because I recognized, um, being the can't shut me up storyteller that I was, that I would really love to be telling Disney stories and be paid to do that. Um, and of course I only saw the glamorous, you know, the fun side of it. There's all kinds of responsible things that are also on the back side of it. But, um, but I pushed really hard to get that. And back then, uh, it was still very, um, segregated in terms of, um, the sexes. So only men were doing jungle book. Only men were doing the Davy Crockett, uh, canoes and only women were doing storybook land. And so the way I remember it was we were sort of the cheerleaders and the jungle, you know, the jungle cruise guys were sort of the quarterback and the football players. <laughs> like that yeah. was sort of like if you were charismatic and uh, handsome and, you know, fun to be around, you've got to be a jungle cruise person. And, um, and then for the females, it was a bit of presentation and all of that. And uh, you had to study for it. You had to pass um, the memorization. You know, they would they would test you beforehand. At least I was tested. I don't know if they still do that, but you had to memorize it and then be tested and then um, learn all the safety on the boats and go out and prove that you could um, captain the boat safely um, before you were actually allowed to also do the microphone. So... Um, Yes, that's what I did. Sorry, am I answering your question? Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was really cool, and um, again, a lot more, I bit off more than I knew I was biting off, and it was a very exhausting full summer because, again, waking up at 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning, 
getting on the five freeway, driving up, and you change into your costume up there. I think they changed it now where you can actually take your costume home and save yeah. that stuff. But back then, you literally had to pick up a fresh, dry-cleaned, laundered mm-hmm. costume every morning yep. and then return it every night. And, um, and then you had to get to your post by a certain time and then work your full shift. And sometimes they would ask you to work OT in case it was a fuller day or people, you know, naturally whatever happens where there's some people who aren't there on the schedule and, and then drive back at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. But the coolest part of that was seeing the park when it was closed without any guests. And it's just all of the maintenance, amazing, incredible, magical maintenance folk out there repainting, repolishing, uh, screwing back in light bulb, you know, all of that great stuff that happens during the seven or eight hours that Disneyland is quote unquote dark. Right. And that was so neat because all they would leave the soundtracks on. They would leave all of the music beds and sound effects and lights on um, throughout all of that. So you'd literally be walking down Main Street by yourself. I mean, aside from the random maintenance people doing what they're supposed to be doing, but no other guests, sometimes no other cast members. And the park, you sort of had it to yourself. And it was incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, and I love doing the. Do you still remember any of the uh, spiel that you did on the canal boats? Um, I think it comes and goes. I think, it, yeah. you know, uh, I like to joke that if you get me uh, sort of, you know, after a margarita or something, I definitely <laughs> probably, you know, I, I mean, I remember the, let's see, I'm sure they've changed it over the years, but um, uh Someone was just asking me this yesterday, and I think I didn't want to do it for them, but let me... Um, Okay, so they get on, you help them, you sort of have your hand out, they step on, everybody gets settled, um, and then you sort of check and make sure that the the boat behind you has come in, and then turn on the mic, make sure that it's live. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Catherine, and we are on board the Tinkerbell. Welcome aboard. You are on board the Storybook Land Canal Boats. In case you thought you were somewhere else, yes, in fact, you were online for the Storybook Land Canal Boats. Welcome aboard. So I will be your skipper this day, and I just need to ask you a couple of things as a favor. Please be sure to keep your hands and arms inside the boat at all times. That's very important, especially as we make our way along the canal here. You can see the boat is very close along the dock. Thank you very much. Everybody, uh, the little ones in front, go ahead and raise your hands. Let's see those hands. Yay! And there we go. We just made sure that nobody got hurt. So I look forward to taking you aboard this. We're going to, we're going to be exploring all of the fairy tales, the wonderful adventures that Walt Disney took us. Oh, folks, don't look now. Oh, my goodness. It looks like we are about to be swallowed by Monstro. That's right. The very whale that swallowed Pinocchio. But that's okay, folks. Don't worry about it. You may recall in the movie that when Pinocchio was inside Monstro, he and Geppetto built a fire. Well, in fact, they made that fire so well that Monstro sneezed. And when he sneezed, he blew his tail clean off, which is bad for Monstro, but good for us because that is how we are getting into storybook land. That is great. That's awesome. (laughs) I literally don't think I've said that out loud for 15 years. And you know what? You should be proud of being a cast member because there are a lot of people. I mean, Steve Martin, who worked at Disneyland, talks about it all the time. So 
Eh, just tell people you're a cast member or were a cast member. It's it's cool. Well, again, I mean, yes, I think it's cool, but for whatever reason, I never felt like it was relevant information nah. in the current world. But I should maybe I should have known. And Steve Martin, it's, I was just reading this awesome because I was reading about Wally Bogue. Mm-hmm. I was helping someone understand some of the um, the legendary voices that you know have always been a part of the park and its tapestry and. Um, so I was reading about Wally Bogue, and I didn't know until reading all of this literature two, two nights ago that uh, Steve Martin had literally studied Wally and would spend every hour that he wasn't working uh, going over to the Golden Horseshoe and, and studying him and learning his comedic timing and right. his delivery and his, I, I guess a lot of Disney fans know that, but I was really impressed to yeah. learn that and to hear that. So it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I mean the, the Disney, Disneyland, even Disney World. There's a lot of history with uh, the parks and uh, well, the company as a whole. And uh, you know that's why they have the archives because somebody's got to keep track of all this stuff. Oh my yeah. goodness, such yeah. a rich, deep yeah. culture. Yeah. yeah. Okay, hey, uh, Kat. But before we get off of that, uh, what was your favorite part of uh, doing that job? I'm sure, like most jobs, it probably shifted from week to. I mean. How honest are we going to be on this show? <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the, as far as being a cast member, one of the, the true delights and being a mouse that I was, was getting to, you know, share little tidbits about the animated classics. And I was an odd duck because, again, I knew a lot about the park history you know, having grown up around hearing it and, and having my father teach it. So I hadn't just memorized his spiel. You had someone who actually knew tidbits about how the color department had done something or or the, you know, um, layered camera, the multiplane camera. So I would, I think, unfortunately, go off script a lot. Mm. And I know a couple of times got a little bit of a, a talking to that I needed to stick to the spiel and I couldn't take long. I would take longer on the boats just to get through and if people were enjoying it, you know, look out. I was going to talk about stuff and answer questions and all of that. So that was my favorite part was um, sharing about the Disney animated classics and um, all of the little miniatures kind of gave the raison d'etre, you know, the reason to actually talk about that stuff. Right. Um, and I loved that. And um, loved watching little kids light the little ones light up when I could tell that something I'd said, they'd then whip their heads around to look at something because it had made a connection to them that maybe they hadn't made a connection to before or interested them because little kids put them on a boat for nine minutes. That's, you know, eight and a half minutes too long. They want to be on to the next thing. It was the adults who were enjoying the fact that they didn't have to do anything for nine minutes (laughs) that, um, you know, that really loved the attraction. So that was great. And then... You know, the the I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but um, being on Storybook Land, we had a break room <laughs> that was a shared a shared break room with other attractions and other parts of the park. And we happen to have the good luck of having um, one of the more luxe break rooms behind us, and therefore the and they don't have it anymore. But the Disneyland, I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm sharing this with yeah. people. The Disneyland All-American College Band 
mm-hmm. was a um, an entertainment. They were they were literally Disneyland. They were cast members, but the idea was that they were supposedly um, college recruits from college bands around the country. And they, you know, all these people had obviously been in their college bands, but they were also professional musicians at this point. But they were young and energetic and adorable. And um, they they didn't just do marching band routines. They they were doing, you know, with their marching band instruments, but they were doing cool choreography, and it was very cute and adorable, and there was a lot of sarcastic stuff. It was very playful. I don't think they have it anymore. At least last time I checked, they didn't, but it was pretty huge back when I was doing this in, the, um, you know, in 89, 90. And uh, so cute musicians you know what can i say drummer yeah. john you know yeah uh, i know it's a it's a cross <laughs> they're wearing their sharp you know college band outfits and looking very uh, all-american awesome and full of charisma and they took their breaks in the same break room so i'm not gonna lie so um, there was some coordination that happened to try and make sure that my breaks were somewhat around the same time as when they happened to be taking their break and yeah. i ended up dating someone from there it was Great. It was classic. It was an awesome. Oh, there you go. Good for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Disneyland making a love connection. <laughs> making a little romance happen, a little puppy yeah. love. Yeah. And Can... uh, it was awesome. Yeah. So, it's awesome. Canal boats. To the cast member official, this will be the best part of your job, but it was great. Well, you know, uh, it's just honest. You know, the canal boat skipper hanging out with the hotties on break. You know, that's awesome. <laughs> Good for you. But you you said something earlier, and we 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 literally could talk to you for hours on on your career and and the different things that you've done. But I know that there's going to be people who are listening to this who uh, will instantly recognize you when I talk about something you said earlier. The the different tapestries, the 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 music and the voices and the tapestries uh, was the part of the tapestry of the the parks. You have a very unique distinction. You, uh, I, I have been doing some research. You auditioned for a role that you didn't know exactly what you were auditioning for, but you are part of that tapestry of the voices of the parks. Will you tell the story about how you became um, integral, let's say, in the Haunted Mansion? Um, well, you're very sweet to call it integral. I, I feel like the lucky lottery ticket winner, honestly, about that. So... Um, and I think that the mansion will was, will be, always will be, regardless of my very fortunate um, minuscule contribution. But it was it's astounding to me still to realize that um, somehow I managed to luck out and be the one gal alive who is a voice in the classic mansion, um, which almost makes it sound like it's a a curse of the mansion. But of course, all of those classic voices were recorded back in the late sixties. And, um, and they're so outstanding and legendary and iconic and phenomenal that they are still there today. And you couldn't possibly get any better than the, uh, the Paul freezes and the Eleanor Audley's and, uh, everybody else who, who's a part of that. The story was really great that you uh, found out there's there's a, a casting call, I, I'm assuming, and you found out they were looking for a voice actor. And you do so many different voices, and you weren't exactly sure what they were looking for. 
uh, and you auditioned and then you got a call back and somewhere in the process they said, you need to be thinking along the lines of Haunted Mansion. Right. And uh, you became Constance. Yeah. So the nutshell of that is, um, you're right. I, I was very lucky to get a call. You know, um, in the professional voiceover world, it's it's a little bit, um, a little bit different, a lot different. But uh, in this way, a little bit different from the on camera world. There aren't open calls. You don't happen to hear about something through the grapevine. Really, it's a very tight, uh, much quieter world that sort of operates on a much lower key level. Um, in some ways, I, I feel it's a lot. And I, I just, it resonates with me because it's it's a much more, I think in some ways, I don't want to use a word that, because on camera is amazing, right? And there's incredible actors that are part of on camera, but um, less ostentatious, let's say, in the voiceover world. People are sort of show up, do their job, um, do it well, shake hands and leave. And it's, it's not sort of this more, um, uh, glitzy, you know, um, energy to it oftentimes. And so I got, I got the call probably through, it would have come through my agent the first time that I was a request to go in and, um, read for something at, at Walt Disney Imagineering and the way WDI does it is they don't, sometimes they send, other studios will send scripts to your agent and you would read it at your agents. Um, or if you had a home studio, um, this is, uh, you know, people back in 2005, 2006 had home studios. I had a home studio for all my ESPN stuff, but because the WDI and their uh, confidentiality and how incredibly important it is to not share what they're doing, um, you would go to them out in Glendale. And I had already been fortunate enough to work with the, the casting director, uh, Brian Nevsky, great guy over at WD. I worked with him on a couple of things. I'd already done Tower of Terror and um, uh, an attraction for uh, Disney Seas, which I was awesome to get to do with some amazing other voice, uh, Disney voiceover talent and and got to stand next to Pete Renaday. I know I mentioned that, and that was a huge thing for me. Oh, my God, next to Henry. Um and uh, that was for one of the revamps of Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln when they did the binaural sound version for a couple of years. Mm. So I kind of, you know, I knew them. I'd been to the building a few times, and it was exciting to go back. And you never know. They they won't tell you anything walking in, and this was no exception. I signed in on the contract. It, it literally says you will not reveal, share, take pictures of, or discuss anything that, you know, happens while you're here and inside. And um, there were a lot of other actresses on that first call, most of whom I noticed were a little bit younger and um, all different types, though. I wasn't catching anything. And I had been told to dress camera, but it was an on-camera audition as well. And then went in and, and did that first audition. And the first round, we weren't really told anything. And a lot of times in... In um, in L in the industry, they give you scripts that are phantom scripts. Huh, no pun intended. I didn't mean that. But they, they give you scripts that are not what the final project is going to be at all. They could be old scripts. It could be a script from a famous movie, and you recognize them immediately. Like, why am I reading on Casablanca? But they're just they're putting something there just because they don't want you to know at all what you're actually reading on. 
and they want to get a sense for what you would bring to it without knowing anything. And um, in this case, from what I recall, it was just literally six lines, and um, they were the wedding. They were wedding vows, and I I thought immediately on a gut instinct, these are clearly phantom lines. The, the, clearly, these are just stand-ins, because you know it just seemed like they just want to hear the quality of my voice or whatever. And when I went in, when I finally went in to read. There was a camera set up, and they said, you are um, un- unattainable, and you are irresistible to every man. And that is your character. And um, you're just going to read these lines and just be very natural. Try not to move too much. You know, no, no dramatic gesticulations. You're just very natural, very real. And you are, um, that's it. You know, that's what I was given and me being me and little miss, well, I trained in you know, the method. Well, who am I? Where am I? Who might I be talking to? Am I actually, am I getting married or, you know, I was asking these questions and they were amused and they understood the questions. But from what I recall, I got very little back other than, um, you're not currently getting married. It's as if you're remembering something with warmth and affection and you know we don't want to use the word mysterious because we don't want you to try to be mysterious but you know maybe you've got a secret and that's really I think the most that I was given on that first round and um, I decided and by then I was already I was just doing voiceover at that point I transitioned out of my on-camera career which you which we had talked about before the podcast and so I had gone in with the assumption it was mostly about voiceover, but it turns out it wasn't. And so I pretty much just delivered the lines with a little bit of a secret. And I think knowing me, I probably embellished a little bit and had a little more fun with it on the second or third round once I got comfortable and once they seemed pleased with whatever was going on. And I think that was all that I knew. And I walked out of there as confused as probably every other female (laughs) going I don't know what that was for. clearly it's for one of the parks, but I don't know I don't know which park, I don't know what for. Man. And it was on the callback that um I and I and that time the casting director did call me directly because he was wonderful and I had a, a bit of a you know, um communication with him and he called me and said, So we're gonna bring you back and um I'm gonna tell you truthfully we're we're maybe playing with the idea that we're not sure yet if we're going to have the same person doing the voice and the the you know the filming of it and i can't tell you too much but think classic disneyland um i want cuz i want you to come prepared I, I i know you this the parks mean a lot it's for disneyland and uh it's for it's for something exciting that's going on and think classic Disneyland attractions. And as I said in that interview, you know, for me, that only, um, if you think about Disneyland classic attractions and you add to that something that's going to have um, either a live filmed, how, how do I put this? And, you know, it's going to have an audio animatronic character or a character that speaks, obviously. Um, so that cuts out a few of the classic attractions right away, right? You know, it's not going to be Small World. You know that it's not going to be um, Storybook Land or Dumbo's Flight, 
You know what I mean? Right. It, right. It's going to be one of those that's more storytelling mm-hmm. and has characters and, and sort of quote-unquote actors going on in it. So that, to me, left pirates. Um, unfortunately, America Sings was no longer around, so that took out that. Um, and I thought it might be pirates because, of course, there's that famous scene with the auctioneer, you know, buy a bride. So, oh, yeah, you were going to be the redhead. We wants the redhead. No, no I, <laughs> you don't, you know, again, WDI from time to time refreshes things or adds synth elements just to sort of brighten up things. And, right. and uh, so I didn't know if what I read on was something that was going to be a significant lead character or support to something already in existence. You just don't know. And having had the wedding vows, the only thing my brain could really go to was either pirates where there's the buy a bride scene. Maybe, maybe with all the, because right then was right when Pirates of the Caribbean was huge and Jack Sparrow was going into pirates. So I thought maybe they're adding something there. Of course, there's always been a bride associated with the mansion, but she's never spoken. So I didn't know if it was that. And then Bear Country Jamboree, um, I kind of figured the direction that I was given, it probably wasn't going to be Bear Country Jamboree, but who knows? You know, they, for all I know, it was red herrings and it had nothing to do with a bride. Maybe they were just giving us those lines. So long story short, went in knowing that it was classic. My gut, for whatever reason, and something he said, maybe he said it so quickly, I don't even remember it, but I remember walking in thinking, got to be i think it's got to be mansion he may have tipped off i think he also tipped off new orleans square which took me closer into the universe and because he kept saying think classic disney voiceover i guess i was naturally really thinking it had to be the mansion because really that's the one that has you know front and center voice voiceover you know pirates has great voice work in it but it's more the, those are more the audio animatronics and the characters and the scenes that are front and center. Whereas you walk into the mansion and immediately you're confronted with this phenomenal voice that guides you through the whole attraction. So I guess I just naturally was going towards that. There's, there's that part of the story. You know, I could keep going, but I don't want to bore and it's, you know. Oh no, there's, there's nothing (laughs) about, there's, there's nothing about this story that's boring. And, uh, you are are very humble, and you know I, I I so this podcast has allowed me to speak to some amazing people, and so on behalf of all the Disney fans, but mainly me because Haunted Mansion is like my favorite attraction. Aww. I love your voice; it's Thank it's you. perfect, and you are part of that. Uh, and I'll say this big word pantheon of amazing voice talent. I mean, that's you. I mean, there, there's no way around it. You are Constance. And that's, you know, that's a tremendous honor. And it's yeah. humbling for me to be able to talk to you. So, you know, and, that's and that is so sweet. And thank you for that. But it's humbling to me to be a part of it because sure. I, again, I was, I grew up worshiping it just the way you did. I, the way it, it was. It was a main reason I went into voiceover. Those voices in the park were my inspiration. I was sneaking in tape recorders and, you know, back when they were little acetate, real-to-real tape recorders. (laughs) Um, And, 
you know, getting every album that I could. And back then, you know, I hate to date myself, but sorry to break it to the youngsters. There was no computers or smartphones. We literally were forced to listen to records. We didn't even have VCRs when I was a tot. So, um, and you now Happy Eyes just went, what's a VCR? So we, we had, we had records. And that was as close as I could get. And, of course, back then, the only record that existed for the Haunted Mansion was Pete Renaday's awesome, you know, um, story adventure with Ron Howard as the kid and, and um, Ronnie as the, as the little girl. And I so, when I so when I was live at the park, is what I'm trying to say, I would soak in those voices. The visuals were awesome. But truth be told, I was terrified of the Haunted Mansion. I... I, um, for a long time, I, I was, I couldn't open up my eyes for certain parts of it. And still to this day, there are certain parts of it that maybe I'll close my eyes through because it just, you know, some things you just, uh, naturally kind of spooks you. And, um, what can I say? I'm a girly girl. So I would close my eyes tight, but I would listen to those voices and they were unmistakably gorgeous and fabulous and amazing. I mean, Eleanor Audley, <laughs> seriously, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And um, so to me, it's very, it's lovely of you to say, and I'm thrilled that I absorbed somehow enough of all of that, that when they said to me in the callback, you know, we really want this to sound like it's a part of the mansion, like it's part of, um, like it's, almost as if it's always been there. We want it to feel like this character has always been a part of it. We don't want it to feel like it's suddenly appeared. And um, so it's almost like seamless as part of the tradition. And that gave me way too much to obsess about and think about my little Woody Allen, you know, method actor side. Didn't sleep, you know, the entire night leading up to the callback, just studying and now, of course, we had internet. This was 2006, so listening and going back and what elements, what elements could I borrow from without it sounding like I was just mimicking or imitating something that's already there? Cause of course they didn't want that. And the other part of that was, which was intriguing was, okay, we want it to feel like it's always been there, but we also want it to feel contemporary and appealing to men today because this character, uh, at least, you know, especially vocally, they wanted her to have this voice that, no man could resist sort of a siren's voice and that's a tall order but also you know they so it has to appeal to men today as opposed to 1969 so i don't know if that makes sense but there was a lot going into my nugget going how we put all that together and still you know and um and their wedding vows they're not uh it's not a fuller script where I can share more of my, you know what I'm saying? It's just these wedding vows that you're fitting all this awesomeness into. And it's perfect. I'm not, I'm not saying it shouldn't be just wedding vows. I'm just saying as an actor, there wasn't a lot there to put all that across to, you just hope that somehow it's going to manage to shine through those lines and do what, what needs to be done. So thank you. But I really do view it as being incredibly lucky that um, that I was educated enough to uh, sort of, you know, educated through the whole Disney and legacy to understand what someone might mean when they said classic and that um, all of the other years of voiceover auditions and everything else kind of 
put me in the right place at the right time. And um, I will say, I'll admit to your audience, I don't think I've said this out loud to anybody, <laughs> maybe for a long time, but I probably would have been the saddest little kitty cat in the world had it gone to somebody else. I, I was waiting for that call. And the casting director had told me he would call me personally because there's nothing worse. <laughs> mm-hmm. As awesome as your reps are, there's nothing worse than that call. Um, well, they went another way. But, oh. you know, they'll definitely have you back. They really like you. Right. <laughs> it's, especially if it's something. And you try not to get emotionally attached to any of it because it comes and it goes and it's out of your hands. And it's God's will, the universe's will. It's somebody's will other than your own as to what you actually are lucky enough to be a part of. And I was a nervous wreck waiting for those, I think it was two weeks, may have been longer, but two weeks of waiting to hear anything about the callback. Um, I saw other women going in. I saw, you know, someone passing me as I was uh, on my way out. And uh, when he called me and I heard his voice, ugh. You know, there will be more important, I I say this holistically, there will be more important moments in my life, God willing, when I have my first child, (laughs) I think that will supersede this, but man, waiting to hear whether or not I was going to get to be a part of it, and knowing that it's probably not ever going to come around again. When will there ever be a chance, a shot to be um, a somewhat, you know, quote unquote, um, leadish voice in a classic Disneyland attraction. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, once in a lifetime. And, uh, Definitely. Good. Yeah. Um, moving on to some other stuff. You do a ton of, you know, voice matching. Um, maybe let's start with, can you tell people a little bit about what uh, is voice matching for those that don't know what that is? Of course. That is the audio illusion of... Um, Basically, it being the character or the celebrity, the voice that, you know, you think it is, and it being so exact down to the way they take their breath in or the way that they write a phrase or their dialect and everything about the way they speak that you hopefully believe that it's the character or the the actor. And it's used a lot. Um, It's been used for many, many years in what's called looping which is um, sort of not exactly part of the professional voice. It is, it's professional voiceover, but it's not part of the voiceover world as we think of it necessarily. It's tangential. It's sort of right next door to it um, and equally significant and important. But there's loop groups. I don't know if anybody knows what that is. Do you know what a loop group is? No. That is, um, so it's really cool, but when they shoot a movie, a major, you know, any, any film with a significant budget or, you know, a budget, the lead actors, the, the principals, who's ever forefront and whoever the action is on will have body mics and boom mics and, you know, they'll be covered a few different ways to make sure that the dialogue that they speak is crisp and um, top quality, that you catch everything that Julia Roberts or Robert De Niro or Leonardo DiCaprio just said in real time. And everybody else, in the scene, who's not a character in the movie, uh, will be not mic'd, literally on purpose. They will be, you'll see them talking. Some, you'll see them, you know, like let's say you're at a bar. Let's say it's a scene in a bar, right? 
you're going to have, let's say it's Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio and pick your favorite. Who's your favorite on camera actress? Uh, Julia Roberts. Okay. <laughs> Julia Roberts. Let's say they're, they're talking in the foreground and they're discussing something. Well, all around them, you're going to see cocktail waitresses. You're going to see bartenders. You're going to see guests walking in and out of the bar. You're going to, you know, see a lot of conversations going on from various angles, right? All of these people who are most likely extras, um, maybe a few of them are, are under fives or maybe they have supporting roles, but they're not going to be miked. And um, that's so that they can pick up everything that the principals are speaking cleanly, clearly, without any interference of any other sound. It's almost completely silent except for what the film crew is doing. That means that once the film is in post-production, guess what? They have to add in all of those conversations that were supposedly going on in the background so that you believe that they were in a very busy New York bar and um, that, that all of this was still going on. Therefore, a loop group, a professional loop group, will go in. They'll spend 9 to 11 hours on a soundstage, usually, uh, somewhere in Hollywood, usually. Some, there's some in New York as well. And they will recreate and lay in layers and layers and beds and beds of conversations that were going on in the background. And they take their craft. It's, it's such a high-level skill that the loop, group, the, the loop groups will need to come prepared to know what, what the setting of it was. So, okay, New York City, contemporary, upscale, and they have to make sure that their conversations sound like people who are actually in New York and whether they're tourists or locals, and that their conversations are part of that world. So that if you happen to hear something low level on a very low, you know, that it, it's, it feels right. Um, but they have to be careful not to use proper names. They can't say dates. They can't call out real people for, you know, all kinds of copyright reasons. So it's a real skill. And, um, and often you will replace some, let's say the bartender comes up and asks, you know, asks for a drink order and then gives them their, their tab at the end. Oftentimes, they won't have mic'd the bartender, therefore someone from the loop group is going to step in and add in the bartender's lines, but literally, you know, um, loop it in to his lip flaps so that it perfectly matches so that you believe that was really the bartender saying it. And they are so skilled that they're able to do that. And oftentimes, on top of that, and this is where the voice matching comes in, um, maybe Julia, Mike, Julia Roberts' mic went down. Maybe planes were flying overhead that they couldn't reroute, you know, they couldn't work around because JFK and all of that. So maybe uh, they're going to need to have Julia Roberts' voice replaced for that scene. They always give the celebrity, the actors, the lead actors, first shot at that. They always say, we need to redo this. They try as best, they make best efforts to get a, court, a studio somewhere in the world, wherever Julia or the actor might be. Um, but if they can't because her schedule is so busy or it doesn't work out, whatever, they need to find a voice match. And that happens every day, all day <laughs> in wow. various parts of Hollywood. And um, that's one use for it. And along with all kinds of other uses, as you can imagine, where the original, the original voice or character or actor is not available. And then they need to find a believable and it's different from impersonation, um, which is a, a tremendous craft and art. Uh, I, there's very few um, that I can impersonate because the, 
art of impersonation is, of course, to be not so, you're not trying to sound exactly like them. You're trying to sound close enough that everybody around you knows exactly who you're doing, but you're doing it for comedic effect to get a laugh in right. comedians. Yeah. And, um, and that's a real skill set. I mean, to both be doing the impersonation and be getting a laugh out of it. Um, voice matching is when it's literally just about being able to nail the voice and also be able to match the lip flaps and loop in accurately and fit the timing. So that's, that's voice matching. Yay. <laughs> yeah. It's a, you know, we've had a lot of, um, well, maybe not a lot of voice matchers on, but, uh, Steven Stanton, uh, who does a lot of voice matching too. Um, and I, I, it's, I think you have to have an ear for it. It's not something you just, uh, oh, I, I could do these voices because I think there is a fine line between imitation and voice match. Yeah. And, and uh, you not, know. not even a fine line. There's yeah. A, uh, I, have, uh, I have huge, there are some voice talents who are brilliant at impersonation and they crowd, you know, they can get a laugh out of you in a second because they're, again, they're, they're doing a bit of a standup routine with it. They're being funny with it. Yeah. And, um, it is very. Te- you're right. It's very technical. Mm-hmm. It's very scientific. In a certain, I don't mean to make it sound like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm ready to be a, a surgeon. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that you really have to obsess about the the nitty gritty, and listen to that voice over and over and over again, yeah. um, to get as close as you can, and and you break it down. Okay, there's the dialect, there's the tone, the nasality, the clarity. The um, do they slur? Do they not slur? Are there sibilant s's? Do they hit their consonants hard? Um, you know, and so you're matching literally the voice print, yeah. almost um, technical aspect by technical aspect. And then on top of it, we always joke. You know, you you nail the match, but then you forget to act, so it can sound very flat. So then it's like, oh yeah, and then I have to act on top of that. Right. So, right. Um, it is, it's a very technical, unique part of voiceover, and I loved it. It was one of the first things that, that drew me to it when I made the transition from on-camera into voiceover. I was fascinated that there was this skill set and that people mm. did this for a living, and um, and I loved it. And I guess maybe having picked up early on listening carefully to the park and listening to the voices in the park and imitating them as a kid, you know, what, what kid doesn't think they're going to grow up to be a brilliant impersonator we're awesome at doing scooby-doo or tony the tiger whatever else we're imitating and um so yeah can you uh can you tell us any of the voices that you've done with without any of us going to jail yeah um you mean celebrities that are voice matched yeah voice yeah you know people maybe a voice match yeah yeah, I mean, people actually, you know, I have a, got very lucky. Someone put together a great, helped me put together a great voice match demo that's actually on my on my website with okay. a bunch of them. But um, celebrities over the years, wow. Um, Jodie Foster, Kate Winslet, Helena Bonham Carter, many times love her. Um, Angelina Jolie, um, uh, Kate Beckinsale. I'm um, blanking on 30 million of them. Um, the so, one Prince, Princess Diaries. Oh my God, why am I blanking on her name? Was there a voice that was harder to voice match, uh, you know, from some of the others that you've done? Is there somebody that really had a, you know, maybe, a, you know, a, a different accent or the way they took their breath or the way they pronounced their words? 
they're, um, I mean, they're all challenging in their own way. Some of them you just naturally, either your voice naturally falls into it because of your own voice, you know, easier. So some of them take less studying and work to get to, but it's not because their voice was any more, you know, it's, I think it's subjective. It, it really, you start with your own voice print and then it's how far or close you are from that voice. And then does that make sense? You'd sort of, I, you know, they're all, they're all challenging and you have to be careful to not mm. slip out of them while you're doing whatever new script you're doing. That's, that's the biggest challenge is you're not getting to say lines that they already said. Usually you're now saying lines that they've, you've never heard them say. Right. So you somehow have to take this map, this, uh, this fantastic, you know, complex map of their voice and put it on top of, um, brand new dialogue and that becomes the biggest challenge is don't slip out of this don't let go of that keep that texture keep that gravel keep that slight slang uh keep that slight twang to their whatever it is and i think it probably you you know i'm not trying to be evasive i just i can't think of one that was like so challenging where i was like oh my god this is impossible they all are challenging at different times for different reasons and um, sure it sounds like uh, you've done enough. You've done so many of them. It's probably hard to just narrow one down because they're all, they're all have their own challenges. And and I know we're we're getting close to the time, but there's there's two things um, that I have to ask you about that have nothing to do with Disney. Okay. And 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 this is the reason why I'm so geeked out. Mainly uh-huh. mainly the second one. The first reason is you're DD from Dexter's Laboratory. <laughs> yeah. I love you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, what was that experience like? Because that was one of the first big shows from this fledgling cartoon network that was started. I, I remember started watching that. I mean, as an adult, I'll, I'm not going to lie. I was watching cartoons, but it was such a great show and you were awesome. Thank you. Tr- I mean, truthfully, uh, that takes us, it's a very nice segue from the voice match conversation. That was a voice match to, um, I had, I had only been in voiceover and this is hand to God, the truth. I'd only been in it for about four or five months. Barely. I wasn't making a living at it. I was trying to break into it. And Mm -hmm. I had, I was lucky to be with a small agent that believed in me enough to, you know, take a risk on me and take a chance with me. And, um, uh, I, what I remember is being handed a cassette tape because there were cassette tapes back then. And being told, take a listen to this, see what you think, see if you think that you can match it. Because I had, you know, proclaimed very arrogantly, as only young punks can do, I can do voice matching. Yes, well, it was going to be years before I could actually really lay any claim to being someone you could go to reliably on that. But I'd taken a few workshops and I was obsessed with it, so I believed um, that I was. And so she handed me this cassette and I remember going down to my car. And it was a hot, I remember it was hot summer and I went into my car, turned on the air conditioning and put the cassette in and and heard this voice, you know, the, the, uh, actress's voice who had done it for, I think two or three shows. And like you said, it was brand new. Um, it, uh, I don't even, I know the pilot had aired. I don't know if any other, I don't think any other episodes had aired yet. I think the pilot had aired. And, but they'd already recorded a couple of shows, of course, because those were in the queue to be animated and listened to it three or four times and kind of went, 
yeah, I, I think I, I think I have that. It didn't, it didn't feel too far from something I naturally could sort of imitate. Um, and, and by the way, it sounded much different than where Didi has, you know, I'll, I'll tell that in a second, but it was a different sort of voice print. And I went back in, walked upstairs to the agent. We laid down a couple of takes. She said, wow, that's actually really close. Good for you. And then I think maybe literally a week later, they had me back to the classic Hanna. It was in the classic Hanna Barbera building on on Ventura Boulevard, which was still there. And I went in for that audition, along with a few other people that were there. And um, um, I can't. I think Gendy must have been there. There, he, you know, he was so loving and attentive and caring about his, this character, these characters. They were his children, and of mm. course. Most people know if you're into Cartoon Network, this was his uh, thesis project, graduate mm-hmm. project from CalArts that became yeah. the pilot. So I'm sure he would have been there directing me. And what I remember was, A, I don't know anything about voiceover. I mean, it was so humbling to walk into a professional studio like that, my first one, really, like high-end like that. All these people behind the glass. Oh, my gosh. And... And he had specific direction, and it was his character, and he knew exactly what he wanted her to sound like and exactly what the line delivery should be. So I, I don't remember anything other than the emotions of, OMG, what have I thought that I knew anything about? And um, did what I was asked to do, and... It changed. I remember I remember feeling like I was trying to hang on to the match that I knew and feel like Gendy was guiding me away from that. And there was that moment where I just sort of made the decision, I guess I have to let go of the match and not worry so much about sounding exactly the way I thought I'm supposed to sound because the director is taking me somewhere else and he's the creator. So I guess I, I should go there. And that's that was the experience of, of that amazing character on the journey that I was lucky enough to take was once they decided that I was the person they were going to install as the voice of Didi, Gendy was very um, clear throughout all the recordings of exactly what the line deliveries were and how they should. And over time, it became in- intuitive. Over time, I was able to do it without um, being told I would know exactly what her reactions were. And, and then it, it becomes yours. You know, at a certain point, it does eventually feel like okay, yes, I, I'm voicing Dee Dee. I'm making these choices and, and I'm going to go here with it. And I'm going to, and that's when the real fun starts. Right. But because of the way it started out to honor his vision and because he clearly knew what he wanted, it, it started out very much as a voice match. And, um, you know, she eventually became sort of <laughs> that awesome, whacked out, you know, I, I describe, I don't know if this is inappropriate for your family audience. You can edit it out. But I, I describe her as Alice in Wonderland on crack. I mean, she's like this wide-eyed, you know, nutsy, poo-poo, awesome optimist who's just all over the place and has more energy to burn than you could possibly. And it cracks me up when parents say to me, "Um, oh, you're the voice of Dee Dee. Yeah, we hear you every morning. Always, I say, I am so sorry. (laughs) I can only imagine what that's got to be like to hear that going on in the background. (laughs) That's awesome. That's that's awesome. And I uh, I just that show made an imprint on me even back then, because I 
uh, I grew up with comic books and obviously I grew up watching Disney movies. But, you know, when Cartoon Network started, because, you know, it's, it's kind of launched off of TBS, uh, I grew up in Atlanta. Oh. So then we started seeing all these things for this network that was, you know, I drove by it every day going to work. So it was really interesting. Wow. Um, wow. Which leads me, which leads me to my last thing. And this is totally un-Disney, and there's so many questions that we're leaving on the table, and Tony's granted me this one question. Yeah, Tony, speak up, man. No, well, no, no, he's allowed to ask these questions. The, <laughs> the, you get your own question, too. Well, yeah, and he's, you know, and we, you know, anyway, so we, um, I'm a nerd for Archer. And you've been in two episodes of Archer. What was that experience like? Because I, I watch a lot of the backstory stuff about the the voice actors. The regulars are on the show. There's a lot of stuff out on the Internet. And you played um, a great character for the two episodes that you were in. You were amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> what was that experience like? You know, you started off being a, a, a voice match. You get, I'm sure you got quite an education working on Dexter's Laboratory and then the, the, the subsequent gigs. And then all of a sudden, boom, now you're doing stuff, you know, for video games. And then and then you kind of land on two episodes of this cultural crazy thing called Archer. Was the, was the situ- situation that much different or is it pretty much just the same? You know, uh, what was that experience like working on that show versus maybe something like a Dexter's Laboratory? Um, that one came about, that was literally an audition in my agent's office. And, um, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't, I didn't know what the show was when I auditioned for, I think that was in its, I don't know, you, you'll know. Was oh that? yeah. I don't know. I can't keep the season okay. straight. I don't, I don't, I watch them on Netflix. I can't keep the season straight. I mean, I certainly, let me put it this way. I'd seen promo, promos for it on FX, but I, I hadn't watched it, um, Maybe I heard a few people make jokes about it, but it wasn't so, all I know is that it didn't feel like it was known enough, at least to me, that when I went into audition for it, I didn't know (laughs) um, how, I didn't know how racy uh, the the show was. So I remember that she, I remember the description of her dialect being that they wanted it, she was close in dialect, in accent, to... Uh, I forget the last name of this actress, Frankie, some Frankie Jensen, uh, the right. gal from, um, born from the first born movie, the, the, the young German actress who was opposite Matt Damon in the born. Oh yeah. That's guy. I have no idea. I knew, I do know who you're talking about. Yeah. So the, sort of that, that cool Euro, uh, she's sort of a Euro punk. Uh, with that cool continent, you know, cool dialect. And that's that's what the frame of reference was. And I remember auditioning for it, um, having, I, I listened back to that dialect, so German-ish. And, um, and I didn't know the first, I remember laying down it once and was having fun with it because she was whiny and stretchy and um, supposed to be pregnant, pretending she was pregnant. Yeah. Was that was that it? Oh yeah, she's and, psychotic. She she was trying to be yeah. pregnant, wanted to be pregnant, and her boyfriend slash husband was right. uh, a hitman. So I remember like it was fun, and I remember having fun with it, and then I remember the booth director saying, "Do you know what show this is for?" And me saying, "Yeah, Archer," and him saying, "Well, you know, 
you can like curse. And I was like, really? He says, yeah, it's cable and you can, and they're very profane in it. So you can feel, so I remember throwing in more of that and having fun with it because we rarely get to see that. You're asked, you know, go ahead and throw the profanity in there. And so, you know, had fun with it. And then there wasn't even a callback. I literally got booked, went into a studio. um, And uh, I happened to be, that was a weird situation because I had to be in New York for something I'd already booked. I don't think it was the draft, but something, there was some other reason I was in New York for business and they found a studio in New York to record it. And that was really flattering. Like they, whatever I did in the audition, it was like, Oh, she's not in LA. Okay, cool. We'll capture New York. Um, which is what they reserve for, you know, celebrities. So that was really neat. And the, the two guys were on the pot. I'm forgive me. I'm going to temporarily forget their names but the two creators of the show and um, they were fun. They were funny. They were fun. What I remember is them saying, okay, do it the, f- the first few times. Let's do it the way you auditioned, but then we're going to have you do something completely different. And they were so okay with improv. They wanted me to go so far off the script and take it wherever I wanted to go and whatever came into my brain. So what I remember thinking is, because of them and their pixie dust and their awesomeness, I came up with funny stuff inspired from them and their encouragement. Because I'm not normally, there are voice actors who are hilarious. I mean, you could sit in a room and watch them for 10 hours mm-hmm. and they, they're like Robin Williams. You know, they just go and they're freaking hilarious. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm, you know, more from the acting side of it, not the improv comedy side. Um, But because of them and the freedom that they gave, I remember coming up with stuff uh, and they were laughing hysterically. I could hear them, you know, I think they were, they were in Atlanta or they were somewhere Southern. I remember. They're in Atlanta. Okay. And I, and they were like on the floor laughing and I was thinking, Oh, look at that. I really am funny. But you know, it's because of them. So that was a great experience. They were awesome. <laughs> well, thank, thanks for letting me kind of go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> You're welcome, Bunny. And when you were saying you were going to geek out on something, I was laying bets it was Princess Leia. I thought that's what you were going to bring up. But. Oh no, we don't oh. have that kind of. We don't have that kind of time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, hey. Mr. T. Do you yeah. have any questions? Didn't you hint about something coming up in the future? Um, can you be more specific? Is there something around Halloween related? <laughs> yes, there is. Um, well, thank you for asking, Tony. Um, there is something very special that if people do follow me and do uh, stay tuned to my Twitter feed, they will learn first about a really special Halloween uh situation event going on through Radio Disney where some lucky kid and his family win something extraordinarily cool that has to do with Constance, that would be me, and the Haunted Mansion. And it is one of the coolest prizes I've ever heard. I'm not allowed to say what it is. Uh, or I will be permanently entombed in the mansion for real. But it's, uh, it's really special. And it's going to be running through Radio Disney. And in about a week, they're going to release the details of how you enter and participate and win. 
So um, I'm really excited to share that with your listeners first. But yeah, yeah it's, it's a Halloween Haunted Mansion special sweepstakes. Yeah, so this will be you and Radio Disney doing something truly awesome in the spirit of Halloween. Truly awesome. Well said. Yeah, yeah. Thoroughly awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's when they tell me what the prize is and how kids get to or families get to enter, it's just really perfect, and I'm excited to be a part of it. Okay, can we tell them when this may start? I know that it will be coinciding with the countdown to Halloween. And um, like in the next week or so, I think they're going to start to tease people with the, the details of when it will actually officially begin. Okay. And do they have to listen to something special or specific on Radio Disney, or is this going to be all throughout the different Radio Disney shows? I'm not allowed to give the details. But okay. again, if they watch my Twitter feed, right. because I'm going to be breaking it pretty much, you know, the moment that we're officially allowed to say anything about it, I will be mentioning it um, as, you know, along with Radio Disney. Okay. Let's remind them one more time where to follow you on Twitter. That would be at Cat Cressida, Cat with a K, Cressida with a C. And that's also my uh, Instagram and Facebook. Okay. So I am going to tell you, everybody, that you are going to want to pay attention to uh, Kat's Twitter feed and follow her on Facebook. And we will be tweeting and sharing along with her uh, once the news breaks. But I'm going to tell you, you're going to want to be in this. And as they say in New York, you have to be in it to win it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well said, Tony. Yep. So. And John, he's not really speaking anymore because we wore him out. He was so exciting to podcast for him. Yeah. So that's it. Uh, I think that is awesome. And we have to thank Kat for coming on and sharing this special news with us. Uh, you heard it here first, and you're only going to hear it here. And uh, you're going to have to pay attention to Kat's uh, feed because uh, – and if you don't pay attention anyway, well, shame on you because she posts <laughs> some really good stuff. Um, well, it is pretty cool what Radio Disney's what, – what the parks are doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I no, I do like the vintage stuff that's uh, on your feed, on your Twitter feed, and your Facebook feed. Oh yeah, oh, anything that's yesteryear, nostalgic. Yeah, I love that land. stuff. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's good, good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Very cool. Just want to say thank you very, very, very much uh, for coming on and talking uh, about being a cast member and the haunted mansion and everything else that you do. It's really fantastic. So. Uh, I want to kind of wrap up and uh, you know, tell people maybe some projects that you're working on and you know where they can find you on the internet, uh, all the magical places like Facebook, Twitter, uh, your website, and things like that. Are those places magical? They yes, are they, magical. Uh, they are magical. <laughs> they connect you with amazing people. That's right. So um, I'm I'm very lucky. I, I've had some really good fortune, and I've only been on social media, as you guys know, for about a, a month, but it's been a fantastic month, and, and I'm so... I truly am touched and honored by some some of the amazing messages that that hit. So I am. It's literally just my name. So it's at K A T C R E double S is in Sam I D is in dog A, and and that's literally it for Twitter. Definitely, you know, please follow me. Hit me up. Uh, we keep. I keep it very, um, very interesting. I like to put interesting stuff up. I do not say things like, I'm having cheese pizza, yay. <laughs> Although there's nothing wrong with that, particularly if you are Beyonce. 
<laughs> but um, I I like to, to engage and talk and, and put cool Disney factoids and stuff in there. And then the uh, Facebook is the same. It's Cat Cressida and Instagram is the same. Cat Cressida. I got lucky. Nobody beat me to my name first. That's I good. Yeah. Happen. And, um, and then my website is catcressida.com, which I'm very lucky. I had an amazing Disney designer help create both the mobile site, which is different from the desktop site, and they're both really cool Disneyland-ish places to go. And you guys are awesome. And um, thank you for the honor of being on this really tremendous podcast. It really is an honor. Uh, oh, wow. it, it's really, it's ours. <laughs> yes. Yep. Maybe, we would love to have you on again sometime. I don't know if, if Tony said that, um, but sometime in the future, love to have you on again because there's so many more things that we didn't even get to. Uh, your your IMDb page is amazing enough. Your your yeah. the things that you've done, we we would love to deep uh, to dig into that as well. But just thank you for your time. Yeah, so it's been it's been a blast. Same time next week. Let's just do it. We'll do it once a week at this time. That's possible. <laughs> no, I would I would love to absolutely. Um, and uh, we'll just get through Halloween and all the hoopla that seems yeah. to be surrounding the bride on the 60th anniversary and. Yeah. Yeah, but thanks, thanks you guys for making it fun and interesting, and it's so good to talk to people from the East Coast. It's so good to hear that dialect. It's like home. I can it say water and pizza all day for you. That's right. <laughs> Hershey bar. I have, a, I have a cousin I make say Hershey bar to me all the time with his joysy dialect. Yeah. Hershey bar. All right. right. Hey, thanks, Kat, and uh, as we like to say around here, see ya in the parks. The Disney Parks Podcast is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. All Disney Parks, attractions, lands, shows, event names, etc. are registered trademarks of the Walt Disney Company. Like a boat of the blue Fate steps in and sees you through One Oh, you